Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I have been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Theo Capaldo. Dr. Capaldo is a licensed psychologist and has been the executive director and president of the New England Anti-Vivisection Society since 1998 and a board member since the 1980s. Founded in 1895, Neves is a Boston-based national animal advocacy organization dedicated to ending the use of animals in research, testing, and science education. Through scientific research, outreach, education, legislation, and policy change, Neves advocates for replacing animals with modern alternatives that are ethically, humanely, and scientifically better for human health and well-being. Neves is also a founding member of the Coalition for Consumer Information on Cosmetics and its Leaping Bunny program, certifying companies that are cruelty-free and do not test products or ingredients on animals. Dr. Capaldo has presented at national and international conferences, as well as congressional briefings on the use of chimpanzees in biomedical research. She has co-authored papers in peer-reviewed journals, has been quoted in various media outlets such as the New York Times, Time, The Guardian U.S., and WBUR's The Wildlife, and provided expert assistance to documentaries, articles, and books on animal use and science. Dr. Capaldo spearheaded Neves's pioneering and successful national campaign project R&R, Release and Restitution for Chimpanzees in U.S. Laboratories, leads Neves's educational affiliate, the Ethical Science Education Coalition, and is trustee of Neves's affiliate, the American Fund for Alternatives to Animal Research, which fosters the development and validation of alternatives to animals. Theo, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Hi, Stacey. How are you? Good, good. My, what a long and filled career you've had. It's amazing the work that you have done on behalf of animals over all these years. And I would like to acknowledge that yesterday was the World Day for Laboratory Animals. So part of the reason for having you on this show is to acknowledge that day and acknowledge the unfortunate role that cats play in world of, of animal testing. But first, I wanted to start off, Theo, and find out how did you get interested in helping animals and, and animal welfare? Well, I think I must have gotten bitten by the same butterfly as you did, because some of us just have what a friend of mine refers to as the animal gene, which is from childhood on, there's just a certain affinity toward other species that makes you curious and compassionate and seek out relationships with them. So uh, first, I was born fortunate enough to have that and have it sustained by my family and friends. And then around the sixth grade, I had a teacher, Miss Gertrude Edwards, you can tell by her rather Victorian name that she was an old timer. And she was a member of me, had our, our magazine, which at the time was called The Living Tissue, on our recess reading table. After we came back from recess, we'd be asked to pick something from the table and, and read for 15 or 20 minutes, probably to calm us down. I picked up that magazine, and there on the inside was a photograph of a starvation experiment with a rather forlorn-looking puppy 
looking out through the bars of a otherwise wooden wooden crate type enclosure, and the sign on on the crate read "No food, uh, just water." So at around the age of eight, when as a psychologist I know when we're really developing the ability to make moral judgment. I was assaulted by this information of what was going on that I had no clue about. So I think from that moment on, um, my heart and uh, focus really was on animals use and science. I remember being horrified by Laika being sent into outer space, the little dog that the Russians sent and who was not destined to return. She would be sacrificed in flight. So science and animals, not a good combination. And then some 40 years later, 35, 40 years later, I oddly found myself as president of this organization that had affected my own consciousness and life mission uh, as an eight-year-old. And you have uh, been the president and the executive director since 1998. That is quite a feat. I have had the privilege of wearing that dual hat for the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society, that's a lot to handle. How do you handle wearing both of those hats for your organization? Well, you know, when when you do something from passion, you never realize how much work it is until sort of after the fact, like working in your yard till eight o'clock at night and then coming in and finally being exhausted. I think it's a little like that. And I think I'm, I'm now 68 and I'm actually in the process of starting my retirement and we're, we have a search committee starting next week, so a word out to anybody who knows strong, passionate, qualified people interested in becoming the executive director of needs. Uh, there's an application process, and it's time for me to be uh, replaced and start to focus on maybe just specific projects rather than the whole overarching responsibility of running an organization, creating programs, having the vision, executing them, and doing it in an area that is a continual assault on any reasonable person's sensibility. Because a friend of mine said when somebody asked her what she does, she worked for another animal advocacy organization, she kind of lightheartedly said, I say, oh, I wake up every morning and face one horror after another, which is pretty much a part and parcel of the job. The difference, though, and what makes it doable is that you know you're doing something to stop it, to end it, to change it. And otherwise, it would be a pretty disempowering reality. But as soon as you take that hurt, that anger, and you put it into action, it turns into a sort of fiery force that is exactly what the animals in all sorts of areas of use and abuse uh, need from people like us. So I think it's been a gift for me to, to serve in this way and in this capacity for as long as I have. And I'll never not do animal work. I'm just going to do it. Well, as I say, my idea of retirement is working Monday through Friday, 9 to 530. We'll see if that really happens. We'll see if it happens. That's right. So, Theo, can you tell us specifically what the programs are that Neves offers? Well, we try to be strategic. If you're thinking about the use of animals in research, you're thinking about the entire institution of science, and, and that means that the degree of diversity and areas of use, it, it's almost infinite. I mean, it's everything from psychological research to neurological research to educational use and training programs. So with that in mind, we did come up with a four-point strategy, and the first was to actually end it where it starts 
where uh, the making of the vivisector, and the vivisector being someone using live animals for scientific purposes. Uh, it starts with high school dissection, if you can believe it. That's the first cut, as they say. And that's where we're essentially at this point eliminating compassionate students from the field of science if we're forcing them to do once living animal dissections. It turns people off. I would have probably been a veterinarian if I didn't have to pith, which means you sever the spinal cord while the frog is still alive. This was back in 1965 and dissect a frog. I chose to not take biology too and I took physics instead. And of course there ended my career in the biological sciences. So one of the things that we try to do is institute change at all levels of education because that's how we will breed a, a generation of scientists who refuse to use animals. And for your listeners who I know have a very specific interest in cats, cat dissections are, are, are rampant. Uh, even at the high school level now, uh, you'll get cats that have been embalmed and prepared for dissection, and the cats are either sourced from Class B dealers or they've been several undercover investigations showing uh, one uh, biological supply company in the U.S. years ago enlisting children in Mexico to find cats, drown them in burlap bags, and then ship them to the supply company to be prepared for as specimens. So cats, for some reason, are a popular species in high school dissections. Of course, frog is the staple, but that's one of the first places we see an atrocious use of a species like cats. So we want to end it where it begins, in, at the educational process. Uh, we want to end the use of the first species, the first non-human species in research, and that's our chimp campaign, the one you refer to, Project R&R, Release and Restitution for Chimpanzees. And here's the good news. We were successful. We have ended the use of chimpanzees in invasive biomedical research in the United States. We spearheaded the campaign, and then organizations came on board, and everybody, like a well-oiled baseball team, sort of played their part, and we prevailed. Now, the important thing about that and why we selected chimpanzees and not cats or dogs is because chimpanzees are closest genetic relatives. We are more closely related to them and them to us than we or they are to any other species. So if we can show that a species that's about 98.4% identical to human beings is still an inadequate model to solve, to, to solve questions about human disease and well-being, then what does it say about species that may have also a rather high genetic similarity to us, but not at the level that we see between chimpanzees and humans? So, for example, chimpanzees have been really used in heart research because they get a different kind of heart disease. They've been really used in cancer research, even though they get certain kinds of cancers. And the crowning mantra of our campaign was their use in HIV research and AIDS. We spent decades infecting chimpanzees with the HIV virus. They just simply did not progress to full-blown AIDS or any form of AIDS as it does in humans. So why not study humans infected with a disease who never progress in non-invasive studies rather than subjecting chimpanzees to decades of life in a laboratory. And by the way, it was legal and almost every chimpanzee currently in a lab, even if they have better enclosures now, spent a significant amount of time in a five by five by seven cage 
And you have to imagine living in half of a standard elevator, and that would be your existence. So end invasive use of animals in education. Get the first non-human species out. We have to mandate that where alternatives exist, they have to be used. They can't just be a luxury item because one of the things we're up against is not the bad science as much as the reluctance to change the bad science, the status quo. Uh, so many institutions that insist on using animals when they're a better alternative. I'll get to that in a second. And that's our final mantra, which is that we really try to fight science with science. We've published many, many papers on the limitations and failures of the animal model and the superiority of some of the non-animal alternatives. That's our strategy. We start out using cats in dissection, and then we see them being used in higher levels of education, treated as disposable uh, living test tubes in, for example, veterinary education. We were successful in working with Tufts University School of Veterinary Medicine and ending the first terminal use of dog labs and other invasive procedures. And now I think it's like 89% or 90% of veterinary schools in America offer alternatives to invasive use. So what we did there too, here, I just keep trying to get back to cats because I know it's, it's your main, I shouldn't say that. I, I, I know your listeners care about all animals, but, but let's, let's focus on cats. What we did there was instead of the veterinary students engaging in terminal dog life, which means you, you anesthetize a dog, a beagle, a purpose bred beagle, and you perform various procedures on them. And then at the end of the day, you euthanize them before they even recover from the anesthesia. Now, as bad as that sounds, that was a vast improvement over the old days where the same animal would be used for weeks with repeated anesthesias and procedures going on. One of our veterinary advisors said that she was horrified when she was in vet school back in the 70s and had and met her beagle. And the puppy was thrilled and ecstatic and happy to see her. And as she continually had to go back to subject him to one more procedure, he would cower in the cage and shake. So eliminating, for example, multiple use of the same animals was one of the accomplishments of the anti-vivisection movement. And then eventually eliminating the invasive uh, use of animals in veterinary training was a major success. And what we did for those vet students is said, look, don't do that. That's not a good idea. We don't need to sacrifice them. We don't need to call this cause this suffering. Let's get you to work in a shelter under a licensed veterinarian, much the same way that human medical doctors are trained in surgery. Uh, they observe and then they perform surgeries under the watchful eye and direction of a board-certified surgeon. So we hired a veterinarian. We negotiated with a no-kill cat shelter, and we brought students there. And they did a variety of surgeries. They saw cats that were cryptorchid. They saw cats that had growths. They had to amputate uh, parts of tails. They had to do all of this stuff that taught them everything that they would need to know to enter a field of veterinary medicine as first-time surgeons. And they helped cats. They helped cats by doing two things, preventing unwanted births and taking care of illnesses and maladies that would have otherwise gone unnoticed. And that's now become sort of a mainstay. Again, it's a double hitter. The students are learning 
and the animals that are being used are actually benefiting from the procedures and the training that the students are receiving. So that was an exciting program, and we calculated that in the years that we were funding it, we had saved, I think it was 6,422,000. cats. So there you go, MRFRS. That's a good, that's a good record, too. That's a very good record. If you like the Community Cats podcast and would like to help promote Community Cats in your state, then we need you. We're looking for a couple of people from each state to be Community Cats ambassadors. What do you get by being an ambassador? You'll be mailed a promo kit of items to use to help promote the show at any event that you attend in your state. If you don't attend many events, hey, that's okay too. Do you have a network of people that love Community Cats? You can help with emailing groups in your state to let them know about the CCP and offer them the benefit of Community Cat swag. The more we can spread the word about the show, the more we can do to help cats across the country. Please email Stacy, S-T-A-C-Y, at communitycatspodcast.com if you'd like to represent your state. Thank you. The Community Cats Podcast will soon be a year old with over 200 episodes profiling amazing people who are all making a difference in the lives of community cats. If you would like to support the show but not be a sponsor, feel free to contribute to our efforts by going to www.communitycatspodcast.com and follow the donate link. Help us to continue to provide excellent programming. So, Ado, you talked about different alternatives to testing and and the model that the veterinary schools now turning to spay-neuter clinics is just fantastic. And to me, it makes so much sense. And I wish we were there from day one. Are computers used as alternatives to testing these days, too? Computerized modeling? Computers are used in education an awful lot because the computerized dissection models, first of all, they can be repeated. If you're working with a frog and you you make a few bad cuts, literally at the end of your dissection, it just looks like a mush of, of tissue and organs. Whereas in a computer model, you can repeat certain procedures until you get it right. So much like under supervision, an individual in veterinary training has to make certain that their animal is going to survive that procedure, then so too do these computerized programs allow students to repeat, they learn better, and they get to do higher level species. So let me give you an example, and this isn't something that's commonly used in high school or even college dissection classes, but we have a model in our office, which is a model of a human head that was developed by the parents of a woman who wanted to donate her body to science, specifically because she was against animal use, and a medical illustrator between actual photos of the cadaver and computerization of that cadaver's face was able to do a dissection of all of the face muscles, including allowing it to move so that you could see the muscles involved in a kiss and an eyebrow going up in a frown. And one of our board members was a board-certified plastic surgeon, and she said, my God, how helpful that would have been, even more helpful than the cadavers that they were trained on to understand muscles and the different layers that have to be considered in surgery. And that's the kind of thing we can do with computers. And I would much rather have my children learning a little bit about human anatomy 
than cat or frog anatomy, which seems to me a bit irrelevant. So you've talked about the numbers of cats that have been used in research. As community cat advocates, what can we do to help change that from happening? That's a big question, and there are answers to it, but there isn't an answer to it. I think, first of all, we have to really grapple with the fact and let in the reality that in the United States, according to whatever data we can lay our hands on, and remember this data is getting harder to access and is not always accurate, some 25,000 cats will use the research, testing, and education. And that does not count necessarily the cats that we use as embalmed species. So that's a lot of cats that end up in research laboratories. I think we have to let in the fact that some of the common uses of cats are for spinal cord injuries, problems with vision, sleep deprivation studies, hearing studies, a lot of implantation of probes into a cat's head so that they can understand certain kinds or try to map out certain kinds of brain function. In other words, the areas that cats are used in are invariably invasive and invariably end in the euthanasia of the cats after they've been subjected to whatever the particular experimental protocol. So we know how cats and other animals suffer on the streets. We know that. We see it. We don't get to see this kind of abuse. We have to have organizations like Neves telling us about it, and it's not a pleasant reality to learn about. But we have to let in that science has progressed, that we don't need to be doing this research in this way, and therefore we need to start to demand that educational institutions, as well as the federal government's agencies that are funding these programs, are looking at alternatives and are demanding that the alternatives that are available are used and properly funded because we can move away from a tremendous amount of animal research. Right now, right now, we have enough alternatives to move away from a significant number of animal uses and re replace them with better science, science that is more predictive of what's happening in the human being. So here's what you can do. When you see an organization like Neves, and we're not the only one, but when you see us running a campaign on mandating alternatives for companies to show safety and efficacy and meet the Federal Drug Administration standards, we have a rulemaking petition that says, listen, where an alternative exists, that has to be what's used to prove efficacy and safety. You can't come with us with the old outdated animal tests that in the past have been acceptable. And let me tell you just one factoid. According to the Federal Drug Administration, 92% of the drugs that are tested and proven safety and efficacy fail when they go to human trial. Okay, 92% of them fail. Of the 8% that make it to human trial, Another 50% fail later because of side effects that weren't predicted. So let me say that again to try to make it clear. You use animals, cats, dogs, monkeys, rats, rabbits, to show whether or not a drug is safe and does what it says it's going, it's supposed to do, safe and efficacious. And you use animal models to test that. 92% that has a 92% failure rate. 
in its inability to predict what's going to happen in humans. Of the 8% of those previously tested in animal drugs that make it to human clinical trials, another 4% are later recalled because of side effects. What that means is, right now, the Federal Drug Administration's manner of approving drugs for human consumption and use has only a 4% success rate. Now, we all know that that's really bad math. So when we do a campaign saying the FDA has to look at alternatives that are more predictive of what's going to happen in the human being, we need people to call their legislators. We need people to call NIH. We need people to weigh in and say, essentially, enough already. It's bad science. Animals are suffering and dying needlessly. And it's not providing humans with the predictive protection and safety that we demand so that what's happening for us is benefiting us and that we don't become just one more guinea pig in a long line of guinea pigs suffering ill effects and even potential death from drugs that were never proven safe and efficacious in, in via the animal test. So that's one thing. The second thing, which is more mundane but extremely important, is if you come from a state that does not guarantee dissection choice in its schools, then work on that. Work on it on a local level, work on it on a state level, because even though we know the alternatives, children learn as well, if not better, from alternatives. Only 18 states in the United States protect a student's right to choose an alternative, a humane alternative to dissection. So start a local campaign. Local politicians love to heal from their constituents, and it makes them do something. And that's a change that will allow you to help change the entire face of science generations from now. Because of the handful of students who will be taking that dissection, who will go on to careers in science. We don't want to close the door on children like you and me, Stacy, who have been compassionate from the get-go and would rather leave the field than have to do some of the atrocities that hitherto the field has demanded of them. So, Theo, if folks are interested in finding out more about Neves and how they could get more involved, how would they find you? And Theo, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? Oh, they can go to our website at neavs.org. That's neavs.org. They can call us at 617-523-6020, and that's the 9 to 5.30 East Coast time, 617-523-6020. And you can also please visit our website called Release Chimps which was specifically on our chimpanzee campaign, because we really felt that that was the species that would be the ambassador for all the others. If we could prove it in chimpanzees that it was biomedically not necessary, if we could show the tremendous psychological suffering and harm, as well as physical harm that they endured, then what will it say about all other species who have a more marginal connection to humans? And Theo, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? Yeah, just one other thing. Um, some people get very concerned, and rightfully so, that cats who are sent to public shelters can end up in research laboratories. That has been the case. 
When I was a child, I found a collie that had a huge scar down her side, and she had been adopted. And I learned right then and there, she had been adopted from a Harvard lab, that animals were routinely given over to research labs. It's called pound seizure. Pound seizure is not banned in all 50 states. Massachusetts has repealed pound seizure, which means that shelters, state and city shelters, do not have to forfeit animals to research labs. But in the old days, that was a very inexpensive and expendable source of animals for research. Uh, cats were very much a part of that food supply to laboratories. But in 2016, we no longer fund Class B licenses. It was banned. So we can't do that anymore. But you still want to be mindful of where's your lab getting its animals from. And while we care as much about purpose-bred animals, which means uh, Class A dealers who are breeding cats and dogs specifically for research, that random source is something that was a real scar on the compassion of our society because it meant that someone's former companion animal could suddenly find themselves in a research laboratory suffering all sorts of atrocities. And in the old days, there were many stories written about people who actually ended up tracking down a lost cat or dog to a research lab. So I want people to go away understanding the depth of the problem and also understanding all of the areas where we're making incredible progress, ending the funding for Class B dealers, veterinary schools going to shelter medicine, Harvard University, we're working with them right now, and we've funded a fellowship grant uh, developing hearts on a chip and other organs on a chip, which will replace toxicity testing in whole animals. So there's a lot of progress going on, and I, I just want people to go away with not just the sad news, but the real good news about one day it will happen, and it will happen because it's better science, and it will happen for us because we have been all along advocates of humane science. Well, I couldn't have even summed that up better myself, Theo. That's fantastic. I, I really think that this is a part of the cat world that we tend to not look at very often. And so I'm so thankful that you were able to join us today as being a guest on my show. And I hope in the future you'd be willing to join us again. Absolutely. And meanwhile, thank you so much for all you do for Cats on the Street. I've adopted myself and you guys keep up the good work. Are you new to the Community Cats podcast? Don't know what to listen to first? Feel free to check out the listening module tab where we have grouped shows together by topic so you can listen to a bunch of shows around the same topic. Just click on the listening module tab at www.communitycatspodcast.com and enjoy learning about community cats.